Okay, we're hoping to get through four questions or four parts of the answer of Larger Catechism 7 today. And hopefully next week is the last uh, Sunday School of this semester. So I think we'll finish question 7. And uh, what's going to happen in the summer, we're, Lord willing, going to be moving to the end section of the Catechism, just to keep things fresh and looking at what I call the spirituality section. Uh, so we'll be starting off looking at things like fit, true faith and repentance and means of grace and see how far we get on that. So attributes of God, we're looking today at God's incomprehensibility, God's power, his presence, and his knowledge. So hopefully we'll get through those four. Um, Before we look at this, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, you are a glorious Lord. You have given us your word. You've revealed yourself to us. And we thank you that we get the privilege and honor of knowing you, of knowing who you are, knowing your presence with us. And we ask that as we look at your attributes, that you will just open our minds to enjoy you, to see uh, the relevance for our lives, and that we would um, live appropriately in light of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first we're looking at God's incomprehensibility. Romans eleven thirty three to 34 says, after a long, very deep theological section of scripture, Paul proclaims, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God's ways are unsearchable and inscrutable. Don't you just love that word, inscrutable? Such a good word. It means like you can't scrutinize it. As much as you try to get it right and figure him out, we are only ever scratching the surface of who God is. But we need to keep in mind that even though we confess that God is incomprehensible, that doesn't mean we can't know anything about God. It just means we can never fully, in the most real sense of the term, actually understand God. We talked previously about how all our language of God is analogical. That is, it's it's relating to something that's true, but never getting perfectly at the truth of who God actually is. Another word that's important for us to keep in mind is that as God's revealed true things about himself to us, that all the language God uses of himself to communicate who he is to us is accommodated language. That is, it's accommodated to our finiteness, to our weakness. Just like how parents accommodate language to your children depending on their age. You explain things either more simply or more complexly based on their ability to interpret, their ability to learn. And the way God reveals himself is suited, it's accommodated to our finite human capacities. And that doesn't mean, even though it's never going to be fully accurate, it doesn't mean it's not true. It's true for what God intends it for us. Um, If you remember, say, uh, in high school, they teach you things that aren't true, but they're kind of true and usefully true. So in chemistry, I don't know if you remember, they teach Bohr's model of the atom, where you have the nucleus and you have the rings and the electrons all circle around, and they tell you, you know, if this orbit has one missing and this one has one extra, they'll share the electron and do this stuff. But then they actually tell you that it's actually not really like that at all. Electrons aren't actually in nice little orbits. It's much more complex than that. But as a model, this works quite well for getting a a grasp of how this works. 
Or even uh, similarly, if you take Newtonian physics, uh, Newtonian physics works really well for large objects at slow speeds. But then they'll tell you, you know, once you get to really, really small things or really, really fast things, the model that generally is true and works well really doesn't work at all. Quantum, quantum, quantum mechanics is what you need for really small and really fast things. And I think that's a helpful way to think about um, how God's revealed himself. He gives us these attributes, these models of who he is, which are true, but at the same time, the, the reality is totally different than our conception. But it's true and it works for how God wants us to live. We use Newtonian physics for tons of things that relate in our everyday life, just like we are meant to understand God through these attributes for the purpose that we would set our hope in God. God's revealed enough of himself for us to know that he's utterly trustworthy, that he's utterly good, and he can be relied upon in any and every situation. And our limited understanding, that, that incomprehensible nature of God, it doesn't mean at all that we can't use God, right? How many of you guys um, used your smartphone today already? How much do you understand exactly how it works? Do you understand the hardware, the software? Some may understand aspects, but most of us have very little comprehension of how the device works, but we use it all the time. God, in what we know from, we can still enjoy him, but we can get greater joy in getting greater understanding of who he is. But also our knowledge of God is more of a relational knowledge, right? If you consider anyone you're close with, whether a spouse or a sibling, whatever, you have very little conception of how the human body works at every level. We understand some things, even less do you actually know your spouse's soul, the actual inner workings of their soul. What we know of each other is what we perceive and what is revealed. When you have a deep conversation, that's an element of the soul coming through. But even still, you, you know them to the extent in which you've experienced relationship with them. And over time, the more you get to know them, the more enjoyable that knowledge becomes. And even though there is still an aspect of incomprehensibility, there's joy in the knowledge that exists. And you can continue to grow in that knowledge. So we do want to grow in our knowledge of God, knowing that there's an infinite amount to be explored in God. And just a couple points by way of application. When we think of God's incomprehensibility that I think is helpful and important for us to remember, uh, the first thing I think that we should learn from God's incomprehensibility is that fundamental to Christian theology is the category of mystery. Because God's incomprehensible, there are going to be things that we're never going to fully and actually understand. And there's an issue when people try to so overly simplify these mysteries to make them rationally apprehend apprehensible that you can get into uh, problems pretty quickly doing that. This was the problem ever since the Enlightenment, when man's reason got elevated to be the highest good. And what the liberals first did was they said, well, anything that seems unreasonable to us in Scripture, we'll just jettison that. So things like miracles, the supernatural, all things like that, gone because it didn't make sense. It was too otherly, too mysterious. 
But there's, there's also a way in which that crept into more uh, fundamentalist and conservative circles that said, uh, the Bible has to make rational sense to me in my mind how I understand it. And it leads to an, an exacting approach to scripture that kind of misses the forest for the trees and can also lead into problems. We have to recognize there's fundamental um, mysteries, preeminently things like the Trinity, the dual natures of Christ, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, um, as well as the nature of the problem of evil. All these things have mysterious elements, and when people offer simplistic answers to them, people latch on to them because it's attractive to have an answer, but it's ultimately uh, doing something wrong. Uh, you can think of something like the Trinity. I don't know how many of you have seen that uh, famous YouTube video, a bad Trinitarian analogies, where there's the two uh, little guys talking to St. Patrick and saying, oh, well, the Trinity's like an egg. The Trinity's like a triangle. The Trinity's like the states of water. And he's telling them why all of these are heresies about the Trinity in some sense. Generally, all these analogies we use to teach kids about the Trinity teach something fundamentally incorrect because it's a mysterious doctrine. Um, I remember back when it was popular, if you remember that book, The Shack, came out. And so many people were saying, wow, I feel like I fully understand the Trinity now, because uh, this book, The Shack, made it clear to me. But it was, again, heretical notions of the Trinity that really just turned into tritheism, three different people. Uh, watch out also, uh, with sovereignty and freedom, there's a movement called open theism, which says, well, the way we reconcile God's sovereignty with our freedom is to just say that God decided to limit his knowledge. So God chose to not know the future. And if God doesn't know the future and God's actually interacting with us, look at that, problem solved. But overly simplistic and ultimately unbiblical. Or even with the problem of evil, I grew up just getting taught, well, the reason God allowed us to sin is just because um, if he wanted to have a loving relationship with us, if we couldn't sin, we'd be robots, and being robots is bad, therefore evil. And there's an element of truth there, but ultimately that's not getting at the depth of the mystery of why there is evil in this world and why God allowed it. There's mysteries there. And what happens when we lose a sense of mystery, uh, just in general about just who God is, is we lose that sense of wonder and awe that comes from the mysteriousness of it, that just we have to sit back, put away our reasoning, just say, this is our God, and I don't understand everything. And there's a joy that comes in that. Uh, if you've ever seen a really good like magic show where someone's doing illusions, and you just sit and you're like, what, how did they do that? That's incredible. Uh, there is a, a, an awe that can come just from the wonder of, I have no idea how that works. And a magician never reveals his secrets, because as soon as you know how it's done, you've lost a sense of that mystery. Um, and so we, and we want to retain that. It's a worshipful spirit. But that, that doesn't mean that we settle for a childlike naivety. Because at the same time, there's a sense in which the m mystery is awesome. But there is another sense in which the more you study something, often the more mysterious it becomes. I remember I was listening to an interview with the magician a while back, and he said, um, I am like, like, he was so obsessed with his craft, just saying all day I think about uh, illusions and how I could do this trick and how I could do that trick. And the study of it was just his passion. Because he understood it, he could actually go further. And generally, if you talk to someone about their field of work, what they do for their career, 
they love talking about it because they understand it. There's intricacies in the knowledge and the study that actually brings more enjoyment. And generally in any field of study, the more you learn and know, the more you realize you don't know and how much more there is to discover and experience. And there's greater joy in just the increasing discovery. And so we need to be aware also of pat answers and, uh, again, simplistic assumptions. Which, which leads to the second thing we learn from God's incomprehensibility. Is I think just as we recognize it, it should lead us to a profound intellectual humility. That God is deep and the scriptures are deep. And we need to be wary of being overly dogmatic and overly confident in our opinions on lesser secondary or tertiary doctrines. What is important in the gospel and the essential nature of God is clearly revealed. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed. And even we've pushed well into the Trinity and Christ's natures in the old creeds of Nicaea and Chalcedon. But there's much that remains debatable. And in our tradition, we have our confession, which tells us quite a bit, and we hold that. But even there, that doesn't mean we have a disrespect for people that come from different traditions. And these perennial debates that come up, things like baptism, things like eschatology, generally when people are incredibly dogmatic about their stance, I find it usually means they actually haven't studied it that thoroughly. Because as Proverbs says, uh, one seems right until another comes and presents his case. So it's usually a lack of knowledge or a lack of having ever studied another opinion that leads to these dogmatic, aggressive stances. And that doesn't mean we can't have a settled opinion. It just means we need to be open-handed in respecting others that have, through their own study, come to different conclusions. And a recognition of just the mystery of Scripture and of God should just lead us to be humble in our own abilities to properly interpret and apply. And so we respect church tradition. We're not walking on our own, all trying to figure it out ourselves. But yeah, we, we want to be humble and open-handed about secondary issues. Not, not open-handed in the sense that you can believe whatever you want. We, we have settled beliefs, but more in that love and respect for your brother and sister. And I think this is a warning we particularly do need to heed in the conservative Reformed Church uh, because there can be a proneness to infighting. There's a really famous essay that um, a Reformed theologian, John Frame, wrote about uh, 10 years ago called Machen's Warrior Children. And he basically writes a history of the OPC and conservative reform denominations. But he says, you know, after there was this kind of start of this movement, he, he worries that instead of, you know, fighting liberal theology, there was, once that battle was won, he says they just turned and started fighting themselves. And he lists over the last hundred years uh, 21 different debates that have surfaced in reformed communities that have led to different fractures and divisions. Um, debates about really small things, but that everyone gets fired up, thinks they're right, condemning the other. And we just need to be wary about this sense of always trying to get the minutia right and rejecting people who disagree. And part of Frame's point is to say, in Scripture, there's always these tensions that pop up. And usually when there's two sides, one side says, these are the truths that matter. And the other side says, these are the truths that matter. But usually they're both truths that need to be held 
both intention. And one says, no, no, but you guys are emphasizing this, and you need to emphasize this, and the other side says the same thing. Um, when there's truth that we have to find a way to wrap both into one. So usually two sides of a debate are right in what they're affirming, they're just usually not right in what they're rejecting to get there. So just something for us to be aware of. And that's actually interesting. One of the debates that split the OPC uh, many decades ago was actually a debate on this very topic of God's incomprehensibility. Um, Cornelius Van Til was in this big fight with Gordon Clark, um, who were both kind of philosophers in the movement. And Van Til said that God is fully incomprehensible, that our thoughts are totally different from God's thoughts. So when I think that's a chair and God thinks that's a chair, we're actually not thinking the same thing at all. It's, it's only related in some vague way. And Gordon Clark was worried that that would make God seem unknowable and it would lead to skepticism. Like we can't know God at all. And so Gordon Clark said that when I say that's a chair and God says that's a chair, that we're saying and thinking the exact same thing. It's the exact same thought. And Van Til was worried that by doing that, he was um, lessening that distance between the creator and the creature and bringing us together. You can see valid concerns on both sides. Um, I don't know who is right and who's wrong, but it split the church. There was a split over that issue, uh, which seems unnecessary because they probably agreed in the point that God is incomprehensible. Just the details of how they wanted to work that out was different. Anyway, so a little bit of history. Uh, any questions or comments on God's incomprehensibility? Alrighty. Um, the next thing this answer says about God is that he is everywhere present. Everywhere present. You might have heard the term omnipresent. Present everywhere. And the famous passage that always comes up here is Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12, where David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is everywhere present in all these different places David is discussing. He, he can't escape God's presence. And we looked previously at God's relationship to time in his eternity, that God is present at all points of time at once, yet distinct from time. In that same way, we can say in regards to space, that God is fully distinct from space, yet fully present at every point of space. The uh, technical term for this is God's immensity, that God's presence fills all space. A.A. Uh, a. A. Hodge writes about immensity that the entire indivisible essence of God is at every moment of time contemporaneously present to every point of infinite space. And this is not to think of God like a, like a liquid or gas that goes and diffuses into all space, but that his entire undivided essence is present at every point of space. Not like dots of essences everywhere, but in a more mysterious way, the full essence of God encompassing all space. And I'm not sure if this is a good way to think of it, but this came to me. That idea of 
you and I are fully in the present right now. There's nowhere where the present is that we are not, right? Like the, the present isn't different in, um, in Asia right now than it is here. We are fully inhabiting the present moment. And I wonder if that might be a way to think of God fully encompassing all space. If you could think about the present the way we think about all space, God comprehends it all at once. God's immensity. When we use the term omnipresence, what that is more referring to is our awareness of God's immensity. It's a, it's a human perspective, and it's our relationship to him as people, that everywhere we go, his presence is. But even though we recognize that God's presence is everywhere, ever we go, our awareness and experience of his presence is not always equal. We're, we're not always equally aware of the, the tangibility of God's presence. Because God's presence reveals itself in different ways, right? We know God is present in hell, but it's not a presence to bless. It's a presence of justice and wrath, whereas God's presence in heaven is a blessing presence. Uh, so his presence is revealed in different ways. Um, Hodge again says, as to his self-manifestation and the exercise of his power, his presence differs endlessly in different degrees in cases and modes. And we can think about this in different ways that you can be in someone's presence and not aware of it. Often uh, at the end of the day, I'll be, I'll have earbuds in listening to a podcast or some music and Julie slips in the front door once she's home from work and I'm totally oblivious to it. She could be in the same room, room as me, but because I'm listening to stuff, I don't realize it. So her presence is there, but I'm not aware of it. And I'm not aware until she reveals herself to me, pops into my field of vision, taps me on the shoulder, sometimes scares me pretty badly. And um, then my awareness of her presence totally changes. She was just as present as before, but then I was aware of it, right? So even for the unbeliever, living life, the presence of God is there but an unawareness and a lack of recognition of the truth of God's presence. And furthermore, the way we think of someone um, significantly affects how we think of their presence, right? If you're in public, um, your awareness of most people is not very great. But if you happen to notice, say, a really famous person there, all of a sudden, you know, that's where you're looking consistently. If you were in a restaurant and a famous person is there, you keep trying to, like, sneaky glances because the way you view them is different than other people or the way you work for better or for worse uh, when your boss is looking over your shoulder or doing a walkthrough that awareness creates even if you weren't slacking off it just creates like an edginess or when a, when a police officer drives by even if you weren't speeding you kind of tense up you're you're aware or if you're all of a sudden a, you see a friend in the grocery store that presence changes your experience there. There's an opportunity for joy and interaction. And so our perspective of God changes how we think of his presence with us. Um, there's aspects of that uh, boss-likeness that, wow, we need to make sure we're obeying God and not sinning when we are aware. But it's also the awareness of a friend that here's an opportunity for joy. Um, there's that idea of God's a king, so we also need to have that wow and reverence before him. All these relationships we have with God affect how we walk before him in an awareness of his presence. 
And this is really what is meant by the Old Testament idea of the fear of God. Uh, the, the fear of God is preeminently an awareness of God's presence. It's living in the reality of God such that um, the realness of God being present everywhere affects everything you do and say. It's living in the reality of God, factoring God into every thought, word, and situation. Because if you really live knowing, wow, God is present, God is watching, God cares, it's a worshipful way to live, but also a carefully obedient way to live. That's what's meant by the fear of God. The Puritans called this living quorum Deo, which is Latin for before God's face. It's as if God's face was always right beside me, and I lived aware of it, lived considering it. This is also the heart of the first commandment, where God says, you shall have no other gods or priorities before me, that is before my face, which is a recognition that all our life is lived before God, before his face. And because of that, we need to be careful that we don't let anything else subsume our hearts and affections that would draw us away from God. This is paralleled by New Testament concepts like godliness, um, a God awareness, a God entranced life, but also I think especially that idea of walking by the spirit that we live keeping in step with the spirit, Galatians 5 says. And if you're walking side by side with someone, it's hard to ignore that they're there, right? And if we were keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, we're walking aware of the Spirit's presence with us, and we are desiring to bear spiritual fruit, to live to God in everything. So this doctrine of God's omnipresence is so relevant for our life of obedience because the extent to which we really live knowing that God is present with us at all times affects how we worship throughout the day and affects how we obey throughout the day. These, so these things are not just abstract philosophical concepts. They really hit us in our lives. And furthermore, if we recognize God's presence in creation, we also recognize the reflections of him everywhere. So as creation itself is a reflection of God, it's like we're seeing mirrors everywhere, that when we see the, the beautiful cherry blossoms, which I just love looking at, that my eyes reflect off those to the God who's present, revealing something of himself in that beauty. When you're in relationship with people, enjoying fellowship and friendship, that image of God in someone else is, is, a, is a mirror reflecting you back to the God whose image they're revealing to you, reminding you that God is present. God is here. But especially we recognize that God's presence is most often manifested most clearly in corporate worship. And that's one of the reasons why we must worship corporately and not just individually because God promises a particular manifestation of his presence in the gathered worship of his people. It's a special way of worshiping that God uh, delights to be specially present for. And God is also, his presence is revealed in his word, which is as the mouth of God speaking to us, and the sacraments. What we confess that the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ spilled for us, these parts of worship are supposed to make us acutely aware that God is real and God is here and God is in relationship with us. This was what Christ came for as Emmanuel, to be God with us. 
some theologians have argued really that the central thrust of scripture, the, the center around which everything comprehends is the relational presence of God with his people. And so if God can be found in worship and in sacrament, we should be seeking him there, keeping our eyes open, looking for God in all these things, because God is everywhere present. Um, any, any questions or comments? Already, God's almightiness. So it says God is everywhere present, almighty. And that is, he has all might, all power. Psalm 62, 11 says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. And this is sometimes called the doctrine of God's omnipotence. He has all potency in himself, all power. But it's important to recognize right off the bat that saying God has all power, it does not mean that God can do anything conceivable. It means that God can do anything he wants to do. And because th there's questions that come up, things like, uh, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? That's like, oh, so tricky. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Uh, no, because as uh, Hodge says, God's power is limited only by his own perfections. So God is perfect rationality and therefore cannot participate in irrationality. This idea of making a rock so big you can't lift it is an irrational idea. And God's rationality is a constraint, but a, a constraint of perfection, not a constraint of any lack. In the same way that God cannot sin, because God's ability accords with his perfect righteousness. And being perfectly righteous is not a constraint like, oh, wow, don't you wish you could sin? That's only an evil, a deprivation. So this all power to do righteousness constrained by all God's other perfections, is a good, it's a greater thing than to say that God could sin or God could be unloving or unjust. So uh, we don't lose anything by saying that there's things like this that God can't do. God can do anything he wants to do. He, his only limit is his own will. When we consider the power of God. But it's interesting, when you look at this idea of God's power, in scripture, it's not usually just an abstract thing that God is powerful, but this concept of power pops up most frequently in considerations of salvation. If you consider the first uh, picture of salvation in the Exodus, consider the power of God in the 10 plagues, but then in dividing the Red Sea, leading his people through as in a cloud. Uh, from our perspective, what an utter demonstration of power. But, but then even more, the power of God displayed in Christ's life, his miracles, but also his death and resurrection. The power of God that then comes to us in bringing salvation, the power of the Spirit to regenerate our dead hearts. And so Paul says in Romans 1.16 that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we need power, power to awaken dead hearts, power to open our blind eyes to know Christ. And this power that saves us spiritually is the power that worked in Christ and his resurrection 
but it's a power that will also work to resurrect our own bodies. That, at that point, when we're dead and rotted, even decomposed, the power of God will bring us and resurrect our bodies. That's an incredible work of power to live in the new world at the end of time. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We will be raised up by the power of God. And therefore, forever, our praise and our song will be of the power of God. Revelation 7.12 has the nation singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul also says that our faith then, it doesn't rest in the wisdom of men, the eloquence of preaching, but in the power of God, the power of God to save. God is almighty. And lastly, God is knowing all things. God knows all things. This is sometimes called God's omniscience. He has total um, cognizance of everything. Knowing all things. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are exposed to God. Nothing can ever be hidden from God. Uh, I don't know if you remember learning in high school about the, the different types of narration, how you know they can the author of a book can take the perspective of, say, like a first-person perspective, or what they called a limited omniscience, or a fully omniscience. That was a, a term that God applied to narrators, saying um, the author can decide that as the narrator of the story, he can know anything. So he can say what the evil character is thinking. He can tell you what the good character is thinking. He can tell you what's going on in the north and the south at the same time, because that's his perspective. And so God's omniscience is God's knowing all these things at, at all times, having perfect knowledge of all natural realities, but also all spiritual realities. Uh, God knows all things that have been, all things that are, all things that will be, but also all things that could be. Um, this could be is interesting. What we're saying there is that based on God's power, God's knowledge of his own power means that God knows all possible things he could do. But his perfect knowledge of his will reveals that he knows all things he will do. So God's knowledge of what has happened in world history is the knowledge of his will. Because all things that exist first existed in the mind and will of God before they existed in reality. And so God's perfect knowledge of himself necessitates his perfect knowledge of all created realities. And again, God doesn't know the same way we do. We grow in knowledge through discursive logic and reasoning adding on to our base of knowledge one new piece. And really, you actually can't learn something if you have no category to attach it to. You have to have some prior knowledge to gain any new knowledge, because we're always mapping our reality onto our existing reality. God doesn't learn, God isn't um, reasoning things out in this way. He has all knowledge comprehended at once. Hodge again says, we know the present imperfectly, the past we remember dimly, the future we know not at all, 
but God knows all things, past, present, and future, by one total, unsuccessive, all-comprehensive vision. God knows all things, which is not um, super controversial, except for God's knowledge of the future. This is the one that constantly trips people up because it's considered if God knows the future, what does that do to our freedom to make decisions? Because our freedom feels in the first place to us like we have the possibility of choosing different futures. And so if God knows the future that will be, it feels like that's a constraint on our freedom. And we don't have time to get fully into this, and I think it will come up later on in the catechism. But there is, again, a mysterious tension here. And we want to avoid ditches on both sides. Because there's a ditch on one side called hyper-Calvinism, which wants to take these truths about God's sovereignty and basically says we're not free at all. We have, we have nothing to do in our life. But there's a ditch on the other side that says we're totally free. God has limited his own knowledge. And in order to retain that truth, they reject another truth. Whereas in reality, there's a truth to both. Hodge again, who I'm quoting just because I really like his uh, theology book. It's really good. He says, God's certain foreknowledge of all future events and man's free agency are both certain facts impregnably established by independent evidence. We must believe both whether we can reconcile them or not. So for the sake of time, I don't think we'll go more into that, but we have to hold both truths at once. And, and this actually isn't really a problem just with Christian theology. Uh, there's a problem called logical fatalism, which all unbelievers have to deal with as well, which is basically saying that if it was true that I left for church at 9.07 today, it was true a thousand years ago. And if you went back a thousand years and says, is it true that JC will leave for church this day at this time? If it's true, then the future, then the future seems certainly fixed. And it seems just as seemingly fatalistic as if God knows the future. So no one really escapes this issue. This is a philosophical issue no matter what. But anyways, but I'll skip to way of application of God's perfect knowledge. It's first to say that God knows you. God knows you perfectly. And when I think of friendship, I don't first think of how well I know other people, but how well do they know me? How well do they understand my humor? What makes me tick? And recognizing that God has perfect knowledge of us is a wonderful comfort because God can be such a good friend to us because he knows us so well. God knew you, the Bible says, before you were born. He planned for you. It says he knows every hair on your head. More, he knows the inner depths and struggles of your heart. As believers, it's a comfort that God knows every single one of our sins, even the ones we're not aware of, because, and because he knows them all, he can forgive them all. There, there's no sneaky sin that slipped by God that we're going to be condemned for because God knew and forgave them all in Christ. Furthermore, God knows every single one of your struggles and your needs, the pains in your heart and the suffering. And therefore, God, more than anything else, can be the best comforter, the best resource and we can trust that because he knows our needs, even before we ask him, that we can trust he's doing what's right. We don't always know the best way our needs should be supplied. We don't know how we need to grow. We don't know why sometimes we need to struggle. But God knows it all. 
He knows what we need in the future and in the present, and therefore he's the best, most fitting comforter and supplier of all our needs. And so because we can trust he knows us perfectly, it allows us to put our trust in him again and again as the fit supplier of all our needs. And lastly, this means that God's perfect knowledge means that he will perfectly judge each person at the end of time. We don't have to worry that anyone's going to be being punished unnecessarily or more than they deserve because God's perfect knowledge will bring about perfect justice. Judges and juries make mistakes because they don't have all the evidence. They don't have perfect reasoning. They don't know truly the motives of the heart, but God knows it all and will do right. Even when it's hard for us to understand how these punishments and eternal punishment can be right, we trust that God will do right because he knows every situation so much better than us. He knows justice better than us. He knows sin in its reality better than us. And so we can um, take a humble posture that we know less than God and we can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know us completely. And we ask that we will day by day open ourselves up to you, pour out our hearts before you, pour out our needs before you, knowing that you want to commune with us, you want to befriend us, walk beside us. Help us to live every day aware of your presence, before your face, recognizing your eye upon us, that we might worship and adore and obey you, live before you, but also might walk beside you in close companionship and communion all our days. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.